Let's go ahead and we'll begin our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that when you entrust precious children to us, whether they come through adoption, whether they come through a live birth, that you have allowed conception in the womb of a wife. We're so grateful for the children that you've given us. You said that they are a gift from you and that they are precious little ones like arrows that we are to steer in the right direction. So we're seeking to learn to do that, some as grandparents and fathers, some just out of a love for children because you've called us all to minister and to care for these little ones. So tonight we ask that if we have preconceived notions that are not fitting and uh, in tune with what you've revealed in Scripture, that you would remove those, that you'd renew our minds, that we might indeed prove your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is Parenting, Biblical Parenting 102. If you are joining us live streaming, the uh, first course, 101, is all online at searchthescriptures.org. It's nine sessions. This particular course has just five sessions to it. I suppose we could do 49 sessions. It's really endless, but we're trying to hit some of the critical non-negotiable points as we think about how we can minister to children, whether it's our own, our grandchildren, or just other children that God has entrusted to us. There are a few blanks if you are here for the first time to fill in because this course is offered through the Institute of Biblical Studies and some take it for credit and so they have to fill it out. So follow along, get a pen in the seat back pocket if you don't have one. By way of introduction, while the word discipleship appears nowhere in the Bible, and let me just stop right there, that's a surprising concept to some people. They almost read the Great Commission, go therefore and do discipleship. But that's not what it says. Go therefore and make disciples. And that's become somewhat of an escape hatch in the last 40 or 50 years of church history, where people take a certain comfort in, quote unquote, discipling other people without fulfilling the first point of the Great Commission to make converts. That's how the word is being used there. He is speaking of making a convert, a disciple. It's, we call it for the last 400 years, the Great Commission. And that's in deference to the limited commission that was given earlier in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus said, don't go by the Samaritans or the Gentiles, go just to the house of Israel. And of course, God, because he is a promise-keeping God, wanted to affirm that the promises he made to Israel would be kept. And so they were first to go to the Jew. But because of the overall rejection of the nation, Jesus broadened then the Great Commission, not to exclude the Jews, but he broadened it, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, nations is the word ethnoi. We get our word ethnicity from it. It's not the way we might think of a nation. Oh, go to India, go to Pakistan, go to Germany, go to France. Now, there might be within those particular geographical locations, a certain ethnicity, maybe dozens of ethnicities. He's saying, go and make disciples of every ethnicity, that the Great Commission is to be uh, exercised with every kind of person that you will meet. And so really a healthy local church should have that in view as they seek to reach their community. 
But the word discipleship doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. The concept of discipling our children for the Lord and other people, we might add, runs all the way through the Scriptures. As early as Genesis, Abraham, who is referred to in the Bible as the friend of God, Chronicles, Isaiah, James, all reference him in that way, and as the father of all who believe, as in Romans 4.16, Abraham was told that he would become a great and mighty nation, Genesis 8.18. On that day when God made that promise, he said of him, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children in his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judge justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God entrusted his truth to Abraham, who in turn command, was commanded to uh, entrust that same truth to his children. How? By way of command. So this word, command, speaks of instruction. And the words, by doing, that he may command his children in his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing, the words by doing imply that Abraham is to model the truth. While God specifically commanded this here of Abraham, throughout the rest of the scriptures, God gives similar commands to all believers. While God does not promise to make each of us a great nation, he gives many promises to us as parents that we can have great families. But great families just do not happen by accident. They must be built on the instruction and the modeling of God's word. The great commission of our Lord is to make disciples. In fact, the participle before it says, literally, as you go, make disciples. Now, some of the older translations said, go therefore, and it left in some people's minds as they got away from 17th century English that it was almost a missionary verse. Go to California and make disciples. Go to Germany and make disciples. Go to Papua New Guinea and make disciples. It's a participle. As you go, as you go where? As you go everywhere you go, this week, whatever your profession is, whether you're a home worker or a painter or a physician or a lawyer, as you go everywhere you go, make disciples of all nations, which begins with our own families. As we have explored in our last two sessions, it begins with the child's conversion. But our discipleship with them continues with teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Very simply said, the curriculum for shaping our children is found in the Bible. It includes the Old Testament, which Jesus validated, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He gave full affirmation of the Old Testament plus the rest of the New Testament that came through him and is therefore just as authoritative and necessary. So sometimes people think, oh, this just applies to the Gospels. And so we are to teach all that Jesus literally said in the Gospels. That's one aspect of it. But in the Gospels, he affirmed the entire Old Testament Scripture. And in the book of Acts, interestingly, how the first historical book written after the Gospels, it begins with these words, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
Now, did you catch that? All that Jesus began to do and teach. Inference in this book, he is continuing to teach. And where is that revelation found? It's found within what Jude calls the faith delivered to the apostles once and for all, what we call today the New Testament. So, um, very simply said, the curriculum is the Bible. It includes the Old Testament as Jesus validates that truth, the rest of the New Testament. Sadly, however, when many adults, believers think of discipleship, they think about a Bible study down at the office or in their church or with some friend that they are trying to share God's word with all the while overlooking their own children as the most important disciples that God has entrusted to them. And I'm telling you, I cannot underscore how warped a view that is and yet how many Christians have it today. Who are you discipling? You got a Bible study going at work? You got one going in your neighborhood? Who are you discipling? Well, as it turns out, we have five children in our home and we're discipling all of them. That's the starting place. I mean, just step back for a moment and think about it. If Christians would just disciple their own children well, how radically different America would be today. But if Barna and McDowell and all these other pollsters and apologists are correct, approximately eight out of 10 young people are walking away from the faith. Well, they're walking away from a faith they never had. You can't lose salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. And so when you see all these young people jettisoning the faith, it means two things. One, false conversions. And then two, some don't necessarily jettison the faith, but they wander from the Lord. They drift like the writer to the Hebrews speaks of. And that's because they're not being discipled. And we can't say, well, it's my pastor's fault or... There wasn't a good local church, you know, where I lived, and so we had no chance. No, God doesn't see it that way. God holds us as parents responsible. Certainly, notice other avenues for discipleship that God may give you are also important, but true Christian discipleship is to begin in the home. If God has entrusted children to us, discipleship begins with them. In this session, we will discuss three reasons why it is essential that we are directly involved in the process of directly discipling our children, all right? Reason number one, God commands us to disciple our children in the Torah. The Torah is usually a reference sometimes to the whole Old Testament, but more often, more specifically, to the first five books. Torah is a Hebrew word for law, and so it's the Torah, God affirms the need for parents to disciple their children. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, which would be, of course, the fifth book in the law, the fountainhead of Bible texts on instructing our children, God said through Moses these words. It begins in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, if you are familiar with this text, then you know that every single Saturday for nearly uh, 3,000, 3,500 years since Moses penned this, about 1400 BC, this is read by Jewish people every single Saturday, every single Sabbath. They call it the Shema. 
Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So the first word is hear. And Jewish people, by the way, just an aside, will often name books or even doctrines off of the first word in a verse or even in a book. And so the names of the first five books in the Hebrew Bible are different from the names that we have in our Bible. Same books, but different names. So the first word in Genesis 1-1 is barashit, and it is translated into English in the beginning. So they call this the book of Barashit, and the same with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're all named after the first words right at the start of those verses. And a number of doctrines and truths that they summarize will often come from a single word in a verse. So they call this the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We affirm the unity of God, namely that the Lord, and you will notice the change in the typeset, it's capital L, small, cap, small or O-R-D, you see how that is? And if you're not familiar with that, you might want to get your New American Standard and just read the preface to the New American Standard, because what they explain in the front of your Bible, the preface of the Bible, a lot of people have never read, but it's really helpful. It was really helpful. In fact, one of the most helpful prefaces I ever read was the original preface that was in the front of the 1611 King James Bible because it gave a lot of perspective in terms of what they were trying to accomplish and what they expected in future translations. The first one that came six months after they wrote the preface. There's the 1611A and then there's 1611B and then there's the 1613 and so on. But in the preface, it will talk about the different words like capital L, small letter O-R-D is one Hebrew word, and capital L, capital O-R-D like here is another Hebrew word. And this particular Hebrew word is the most cited name for God in the Bible because it's the covenant name for God. It's four letters in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels that are written in Hebrew. Your mind supplies the vowels as you read it but we usually vocalize it Yahweh. So, namely that the Lord Yahweh is one, not three, just as 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is one God, and the unity of God is affirmed in the New Testament. We teach our children that we worship one God existing in three persons, not that we worship three separate gods. And that's one of the early questions that we answer for them the doctrine of the Trinity. When Moses speaks of the Lord, he uses a singular noun. And yet when he speaks of God here, he uses the Hebrew noun Elohim, which grammatically is a plural noun suggesting the oneness and plurality of God. It's it's interesting. When you see that phrase repeatedly, the Lord our God, Lord is a singular noun for God. And then the Yahweh, and then the second word, God, it's Elohim, it's a plural noun. And interestingly, in Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and then there's a form of a noun for three or more. So like um, in the children's Bible that I will suggest to you next week, that I think is the best one still available, there will be two cherubim at the entrance of the garden on either side of the flaming sword. Why not 10? Why not three? Why not one? Because in Hebrew, it's a dual. 
And so interestingly, singular noun, the Lord, God is the three or more. And so you find right here in the early chapters of Scripture, the oneness of God and yet His plurality. Even in the opening verses of Genesis, let us make God in our image, not let me make man in my image, but let us. In the beginning, God, plural Elohim, created singular verb, the heavens, a dual, because there was not yet a third heaven, the heavens and the earth. Even in the opening verse of the Bible, in kernel form, the triunity of God is affirmed. Uh, it would be poor English to say, they is fat. Yet that jumps off the page of a Hebrew-speaking rabbi in the beginning, God, plural, singular verb, created. Why? Because God is putting right in the front door something about his own person. When Moses speaks of the Lord, he uses a singular noun, and yet when he speaks here of God, he uses the Hebrew noun Elohim, which grammatically is a plural noun. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Our first objective in discipling our children is for them to become a disciple because only through conversion can they come to know God, John 17, 3, right? Not know of his existence. All men know that. They have a knowledge of God, so they are without excuse. Who's Paul referring to? Raw pagans. But when Jesus uses the word that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3, he's using a word that describes a personal relationship. And that's what you want to do. You want your children to come to know God, and knowing him enables them to act rightly towards them. So, you know, sometimes it concerns me. And I had a parent recently in the office, and I said, now I'm looking at your kids, and your eight-year-old is in here because your eight-year-old wants to talk to me about baptism. But I notice here that your 10, your 12, and your 14-year-old have never been baptized. Not that baptism saves, but what does that say to me as their pastor? It says to me that the eight-year-old has a desire to follow through in baptism because there's an obedience issue in their heart where these other kids do not. Well, why don't they? Is it because they're saved and they don't see the importance of baptism? Or is it because they're unregenerated? And so sometimes as parents, we're trying to raise children to be Christians who haven't had the second birth. And all you're doing at that point is you're building a fence. And the fence is important. We'll talk a little bit about that next week in terms of child discipline and how that fits into the biblical parenting model. Building the fence is important, but if you don't reach the heart, there comes a point when you're no longer there to fence them in. And then you see what they're really made of. So one, you want them to be regenerated, but you can see them regenerated, but if you don't disciple them, then their spiritual growth will be very limited, and they will be more likely to drift. So you want to bring both of those concepts together. God wants, number six, from us as parents to teach our children to give him our due, and God wants a complete love from us because he loves us 
completely. Is that not what John affirms in his first epistle? We love him because he first loved us. We want our children to know that what God wants from us first and foremost is not our money or our time or our effort, but our love. That's really what we're trying to instill in them, that God wants our love. Now, love is expressed through obedience, obviously, and this is the love of God. John will write in the fifth chapter of his first letter that we keep his commandments, and his commandments, he said, are not burdensome. So certainly love is expressed in obedience, and it might be some of the things I listed here, like how we handle our money and so on. But the big focus is, is you want your children to love God. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus called Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the greatest of all the commandments that God has given to us. And that the second was like the first because when we love the Lord your God, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember the occasion, it's in Matthew 22. It's in the final days of Christ's life. Um, someone was asking me just recently, they said, you know, I, I get my, the, the gospel's all confused and where to find. I said, it's not as difficult as you make it. I said, with each gospel, just kind of back up. I said, 28th chapter of Matthew, Great Commission, is that resurrection or before the resurrection? Or, oh, it's resurrection. Okay, well, last chapter of that gospel, resurrection. Step back a chapter, 27, crucifixion. Step back a chapter, and 26 and before, and it's the final week of Christ's life and all that leads up to the crucifixion. Same thing in Mark's gospel. Mark 16, resurrection. Mark 15, crucifixion. 14, and you can count the chapters back, the final week of Christ's life. Same with Luke's gospel. John's the exception in that there's a postscript on 21, a post-resurrection chapter on that beach, but chapter 20, resurrection, chapter 19, crucifixion, chapter 18, arrest and the events in that final week. So uh, what might be good if you haven't done it is take each of those gospels and find out, well, where does the final week start? And you'll be surprised how much space is committed to the final week of Christ's life. Just like when the lamb would be brought in on Palm Sunday, for the priests all week to examine the lamb. Christ, the lamb of God, comes in on Palm Sunday and all week long he's examined. So a large portion of the gospels focus on the last week. And if you can just get that down with each gospel, you're, you're beginning to develop a working knowledge of the gospels and how they fit together. So this is in the last week of Christ's life. He's being examined by the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the scribes. In one of them, a lawyer, the word lawyer and scribe is used interchangeably in the Bible, same, same person, uh, a lawyer not like someone who deals in criminal law or, you know, civil disputes, but a lawyer in the New Testament era had a specialty in the Scriptures. They were scribes. Initially, the scribes like Berechiah, the scribe of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, spoke God's word, and he wrote it down. But eventually, when the Scripture was completed, the scribes copied Scripture because paper didn't last forever, and they copied it with incredible precision. We were just in Qumran 
a few weeks ago, and I was explaining to him that we found a complete copy of the prophet Isaiah, and there was a difference of 17 marks between the one that we had had that was 1,100 years later and now this one that was 1,100 years older. We went from 900 A.D., which was the oldest copy of Isaiah we had before, to 200 years before Christ. And when they compared the two, they were identical with the exception of 17 marks. And the differences were like commas or spellings of words that have changed. We used to spell Savior with a U in America like they still do in England now without that. So... These scribes, this lawyer, asked him a question. And at this point, the scribes, the lawyers, not only copied scriptures, they taught the scriptures. They were supposed to be the experts in the teaching of God's law. And this, um, this particular field was given to the Levites. The Levites, the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes, Within the tribe of Levi, there was one family called the tribe of Aaron. If you were from the fam, excuse me, the family of Aaron in the tribe of Levi, then you could be a priest. So every priest was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. The other families outside of Aaron who were in the tribe of Levi, they were scribes or lawyers. And so when Moses, if you remember, divided up the promised land, there were 48 cities for the Levites, and they're strategically positioned all across the promised land so that no matter where you live, there's a Levite close by who could teach you the scriptures. So these guys were like important dudes in Jesus' day. And one of them, a lawyer, a scribe, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Because if you think about it, even the 613 commandments that are found in the law, the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, right? Tukos, law, Greek, Penta five, five books, five books of law. All 613 commandments in one way or another come down to these two. You're either loving God or loving your neighbor. That's why Jesus can say the whole law and the prophets depend on these two. Now observe carefully the next verse because it is a prerequisite to helping your children to love God. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So we just read Moses the end of his life, he's not going to go into the promised land, gathers all the people together. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus said, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you're to, but for that to be true, notice he's speaking to the dads. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. The great command to love God supremely is expressed in keeping all of God's commandments must first be in our hearts or we will never be able to communicate this as a way of life to our children. Question, if your children were to fill in the following blank, more than anything else in this entire life, my dad or my mom loves, what would they say? Video games? Camping, fishing, hunting, work? What would they say? 
And honestly, if it's like, I don't know, I got to think about that one, then that shouts a deficit in our relationship with the Lord and our ability to build into the lives of our children. Turn the page. If your children, by observing your life, cannot say that your greatest love in this life is the Lord your God, then you have already placed a huge roadblock in front of them concerning true Christian discipleship. However, when we love God first, such that his word is first in us, then we can live out the next verse. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, intentional discipleship, deliberately pouring God's truth into our children is a vital aspect of parenting. By the way, there's an assumption here too that we're with our kids, is there not? And that's what the devil has tried to convince evangelical believers of, that you don't really need to be with your kids. People get mad at me sometimes because I say it is a high and holy role for a mother to stay at home. And look, I've never taught that a woman who's out at work is in sin. We grow by conversion. We have people all the time who come here, both parents are working, they've made moral obligations and commitments where it's virtually impossible at that point in their life without breaking other moral dictates to just send her home. But if they are asking me what God's ideal is. It's not a mystery. God's ideal is for a mom to be there at home with her children. That's what you strive for. That's what you shoot for. God's ideal is that families are together. There's an assumption in Moses' words here that we even sit down in our houses, that we have meals together. I had a brother, he said to me, a brother in Christ, not my blood brother, but he said, I can't remember the last time we had a meal together in the house. Oh, we've had it at McDonald's and this place and that place. But I mean, just together, all of us in one place together having a meal. There's an assumption here that people are together. So this verse reminds us that while some of God's truth is sometimes taught in a very concerted manner, as in, say, a nightly Bible reading, most of our teaching is done as we live in the everyday moments of life. You're just hanging with your kids, and they ask these questions, great questions. My daughter sent me a list of questions that Charles asked. I think she posted them on her Instagram page yesterday, and just asked a few days ago while he was sitting there just sitting on the floor and making these blocks and he's asking these all kinds of incredible theological questions. Had she not been there, she never would have heard them. But she had the opportunity to answer them and build into his life. Reason number two, God commands us to disciple our children in the New Testament epistles. In Ephesians chapter 6, God spoke directly to the fathers. Listen to what he said by the pen of the apostle Paul. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents often ask themselves, will our children be good when we are not there to make them good? And the answer is yes, 
if we have trained them properly. And so God gives us some hints as to what is involved in in this training process. Now, while some paraphrase translations like the TEV or the CEV, today's English version, contemporary English version, and other translations now start verse 4 with the word parents. They don't write, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but they write, parents do not provoke your children to anger. That is an interpretation and not a translation and is an unfortunate mistake for several reasons. By the way, that's always the challenge of a paraphrase. Paraphrase, a translation uh, is typically, um, that as a paraphrase is typically done by one person. Occasionally there's a group of people, but uh, most of your more literal translations are done by dozens of translators. Sometimes 100, sometimes 200, sometimes 300 translators that are pouring over the text and comparing notes and words and what word today best represents that. And, and so in a paraphrase translation, probably the worst one out today is called the message. It's disastrous. And it's done on Navigator Press of all presses and it made them in the first year like $9 million, so I don't think it's going anywhere. But, you know, he wrote out, just read 1 Corinthians 6 in the message, and you'll see, hey, whatever happened to homosexuality, huh? He left out a lot of stuff. And so parents is not what the text says. The Apostle Paul does not write, number six, parents, because he wants us to sing, because he wants to uniquely single out fathers. I skipped five. The Apostle Paul has already used the more normal Greek word for parents in verse 1 when he said, children, obey your parents for this is right, you know that verse. And so had he intended to address both parents, he would have used the same. But that's not the word the Spirit of God gives him. The Apostle Paul does not write parents because he wants to uniquely single out fathers because they are to be the heads of their home. With that said, this is not to say that the responsibility of verse 4 is the singular responsibility of the father, because the rest of Scripture teaches that both fathers and mothers are to be involved in this process. There's a lot of verses in the New Testament like, okay, mothers are to be workers at home. Older women are to teach the younger women, among other things, to be workers at home. But before that, he says to love your husband. So even in that command, there is an assumption that the woman is married such that she might be able to be a worker at home. But there's all kinds of challenges in our day, single moms and all kinds of marriage situations where sometimes one is converted and the other is not. We'll look at one of those in a moment. And so sometimes the responsibility falls more on the mother. Um, In either case, in an ideal setting, it's the dad who's supposed to be the leader. Number eight, it is important for every dad to recognize that headship involves leadership. And so fathers, as the heads of their homes, are to be the spiritual leaders in the discipleship process. You know, as I remember years ago talking to my daughter and about, you know, finding a husband and and I said, well, one of the things you want to look for is a spiritual leader, a guy that would lead. You're not leading him. He wants to be a leader. 
He wants to lead you. He, wa- he, he has some deep convictions that that's what God has called him to do as a man. As fathers, each of us will stand before our Lord in heaven to give an answer for how we served and led our families in the instruction process. Fathers and not wives are first accountable to God. Now, women are accountable, wives are, but first and primarily, it is the dad. It's just like in the church. All of us will give an account, but elders will give a stricter account for how they serve the church. If it's a flippant responsibility and they could care less and they're out of touch with the people and they don't care to be involved, they'll give a stricter account. It's a serious thing, so it is with dads. When the father is walking with God by loving God supremely, then typically his wife will be on his team and together they will have a huge impact in the lives of their children together. Now, negatively in this instruction, fathers are warned not to provoke their children to anger, which is in Biblical Parenting 101, which we covered many examples in depth. I'll just read them here. Here are some examples of some ways to provoke your children to anger, but I go into great depth with parallel scripture in 101, always blaming, never praising, showing favoritism of one child over another. Failure of a father to make his children a priority over his own wants. Yeah, Dad, and what are you doing today? I'm going to play golf. Can I come? No. I'm going fishing. I'm going hunting. I'm going out with the boys. Smothering the child as they move to adulthood. We'll talk a little bit about that transition that as dads and moms, we need to recognize as they move from childhood into adulthood, fantasizing your achievements through your children. Look, there's some dads who do that in sports. Man, you're going to achieve and you're going to pitch or you're going to be the quarterback or you're going to be a great golfer because that's what I want you to be. And they're living their dream through their kids. And some women sometimes are living their youth through their daughters. I think, why, why, why would you want your daughter to dress like that? Don't you want to guard her purity? And as I find out sometimes, it's a problem with the mother who's trying to live her youth over through her daughter, expressing conditional love by the child's achievement. You know, kind of, I love you if you do well in school, if you do this, if you do that, rather than I love you unconditionally. Beating a child down with verbal abuse and sarcasm. Unkept promises by saying one thing and doing another. So that will just like destroy your opportunity to obey the rest of the verse. So negatively, we don't provoke our children to anger. Positively, fathers, again, they're the leaders by example, are to bring them up where God inspires Paul to use the Greek word for bring that literally means to nourish and to feed and to protect. Ektrepho is the Greek word. It's the identical Greek word that he uses in Ephesians 5 when he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it. Ektrepho, again, nourish. Just as you take care of your physical body by eating properly and exercising and avoiding harm or pain or whatever, even so we are to protect our children. Most dads see themselves as the providers of their homes, which is certainly true, for God commissioned Adam to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. 
And sometimes when a woman comes in and she starts complaining about her man, I'll say, well, does he pay the bills? Is he working? Yeah, he worked 50 hours last week. Well, man, why don't you start there commending the guy for that? He's not a bum. That's a good thing. And that's what a man is supposed to do by the sweat of his brow. However, God has called fathers to be more than just the providers, but the protectors of their homes. Some dads say, well, look, I, I, I pay the bills. Well, you're supposed to. But it's more than that. We're to be the protectors of our homes. Critical to the whole process of protecting our homes is to protect our own hearts, that we in turn might guard our children from evil. Solomon writes in Proverbs, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Look, some dad who's in porn, some dad who's listening to the trash music, some dad who is, you know, watching junk on TV or just into these video games, which is the, in my judgment, it is the gateway into pornography. And we got these young boys playing these video games with these voluptuous women in them, and all in, the, in their, they're feeding the sensual. But if a dad himself doesn't guard his heart in this area, he lets his standard down. And he's not in tune and in touch with the things he needs to be in touch with. And evil walks right into the front door of his home and he doesn't even see it. As the protectors of our homes, it is essential in this day that the fathers protect their children, certainly from liberalism, from materialism, and from hedonism. As the protectors of our home, we will never be able to teach our children as we walk in the way if our hearts are filled with the world. It just won't happen. The Spirit of God is not going to compete in your heart. If we are not Spirit-filled men, we can't lead our children. If our heart is filled with the world, the Word of God is not going to have the place there where the Spirit of God can bring it to our mind and see the life experiences that our kids are walking through and relating it to Scripture. We won't even have a hunger for Scripture if we're being filled with the world. Discipleship is passing on a lifestyle diligently taught from the Scriptures that we want our children to emulate. While the father is to play the leadership role in his home, the mother is equally responsible, for it is often mothers and sometimes the grandmothers who shape great men. History proves that. Church history proves it. And even the Scripture, Timothy, who appears to have had an unbelieving father, was shaped in a profound way by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. For I am mindful, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. What's the genesis of this marriage between Eunice and her Greek husband? We're not told. It could have been any number of circumstances, some in a Roman culture beyond her own control. But in either case... 
maybe, maybe she hadn't come to faith like her mother had, and she came later in life, and then she married in disobedience and unbeliever. We're just not told, so it's just speculation. But the fact is, is that these two women, and not the dad, took the bull by the horns and had a profound impact on Timothy. Timothy was a product of a mixed marriage in that his father was a Greek and his mother and his grandmother were Jewish, Acts 16.1, both of whom, though, were godly women, women with this, having a sincere faith. Long before these women, they had, long before these women had received Jesus as their personal Savior, as the Old Testament saints, they instructed Timothy with truth. So they were saints, so to speak. The word saint, of course, means a separated one. It's not used in the Bible as our Catholic friends do of a certain select group of people. Um, Fear the Lord, you his saints, the psalmist will write, speaking of Old Testament people. Saints are used of tribulation believers, and it's used of the New Testament church. So they were Old Testament saints, and as Old Testament believers, we'd say, they had instructed Timothy with truth. With the same confidence that Moses told the Israelites to teach their children diligently the law of God, and with the same confidence that Lois and Eunice displayed and obeyed, Paul says the same to us. Notice again by application in that from childhood you have known, speaking to Timothy, the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Scripture is powerful, all Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. It teaches you in the way that you should walk. It reproves you when you've gotten off that path. But it not only reproves you and shows you where you've gone wrong, it corrects you and shows you how to make it right for training in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, the teenager, the youth, the 10-year-old might be adequately equipped for every good deed. There is a verbal instruction that is to be taught and modeled called instruction in Ephesians 6.4 that parents are to teach their children. Now, with that said, church programs can certainly be helpful and beneficial, but they cannot take the place of parenting for the time your children spend at church is minimal in comparison to the time they spend with you. So, you know, we might have them four hours a week. There's 168 hours in the week. But what we do here should complement, and, of course, we're trying to put tools in people's hands. And we have kids. Occasionally, I'm in a listener over in a wand. I don't get to do it very often because of meet the pastor on those nights. Sometimes I'm at Graniteville when the troops are meeting here. But by the way, I never go home and just, you know, put my feet up while people are working here. I'm here when they are. But as I listen sometimes, I see some of these kids who don't have the benefit of a dad or a mom at home that really cares. We have some kids like that right now on Wednesday night in the choir. My wife has been in there Wednesday nights for, I don't know, forever, it seems. And there's some kids in there, and you know, the parents just drop them off here. And no one works the verse with the child. And you can see those kids, it's like they, they really want to get the verse. What they do is they, 
the first psalm they recite over there is Psalm 1 and then Psalm 8 and all these different psalms that they are learning and they recite them in front of the whole class. And some of the kids, it's like, what's going on at home? And some of the parents, some of our own, aren't taking it seriously. Either A, you know, look, I, I, I didn't chide the dad recently who was in my office, and I said, well, if your child would have had that verse in first grade, and he would have had this one in third grade, and he would have had this one in sixth grade, and he's in seventh grade, and he doesn't know any of these verses. And I said, look, you know, it's your call. If you, you know, you're working hard all week and you want to have a family night, great. But when are you going to give your kids these scriptures? And the great thing when you put in a wanna book, say, in the, heart, in the hands of a parent, is you're giving them a tool. So when the child memorizes Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In the margin, there's a question, what is a wage? What is a gift? What is eternal life? What is death? And you're putting definition and meaning to the verses where it's more than just memorizing and spitting out a verse. And I tell parents all the time, it's better for your child to memorize two verses and understand them than 22 verses where it just goes right by them. So when one precious little four-year-old said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only forgotten son, I, I knew she didn't get the verse, all right? Um, but church programs aren't the whole answer. They're just part of the answer. Reason number three, if we do not teach our children, the world will. Every day, our children are being exposed to messages from our culture about how they should look, think, and act, which is why Proverbs 19, verse 18, warns us where there is no vision, the people perish. And by the way, I think some of you know this verse has nothing to do with a mission statement. Rick Warren took this verse and popularized it and said, what's your mission statement? Give it to me in one sentence. If you can't, then your church is out of touch. That verse has nothing to do with this. Where there is no vision, it's a Hebrew word. Some English translations even render it a little more woodenly. Where there is no revelation, where there is no word from God Almighty, the people perish. And when there's no word in the hearts of your children, the kids suffer. And that's why, you know, we need to have our kids in good churches. That's why when Marines leave here and they go to another city and another place, we'll try to help them find the best church they can. And sadly, in a lot of cities, there's not a healthy church. Children fall apart when they are left without the Bible to direct them. And the older they get, their exposure to the teaching of the world only increases, which is why our discipleship must, must be intentional. As you deliberately instruct your children in the ways of Christ, you too will find refreshment in the truths of Scripture. Isn't that true? You know, you're, you're teaching your kids, and it's just like, man, God's teaching me. This is so good, and it's a verse maybe that you've, you've known forever. But God gives you a fresh insight to it that he uses just as you carry out your role. You will find that as you teach, you too are learning. You, you, you know, <laughs> you really want to learn the Bible, start teaching it. Now, start with your kids. There's an audience. 
But, you know, people tell me all the time, man, I, I, when I started teaching, you know, fifth, year, fifth graders in Awana, I really started growing because I had to prepare the lesson and I had to at least feel like I knew what I was talking about. So when you teach, you're learning. And so as you teach your children to worship, you worship. As they grow, you grow. We must begin to help our children learn how to walk with Christ in an immoral world and to help them to become self-feeders on God's Word. My, how important it is today. This nation is changing so fast. And if we don't get the upper hand with our children, the world will. In the early years, you will be reading and teaching the Bible to your children, but as they grow, as a parent, you will want to provide encouragement to spend time alone with God each day, for them to spend time alone with God each day. We'll talk a little bit next time. I'll give you some suggestions that might be useful to you. You will certainly want your children to know that one day they will stand alone without you before the throne of God to give an account. If you fail to intentionally disciple your children, then the culture will dictate how they will be raised instead of their parents and grandparents. God uses some very powerful imagery to describe what aspirations that he has for our children. When the psalmist writes in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Arrows in the hands of a warrior are offensive weapons. For God has given us a mighty weapon in our children whom we can rear and then shoot out at the forces of darkness as the kingdom of God is advanced to the glory of God. Our children are like arrows that we send into the world and through discipleship, we are getting our arrows ready. That's our job. Our Father, again, we thank you that you haven't left us clueless, but you've given us this instruction manual. But you told us, you warned us, you admonished us not just to be those who hear the word, but to those who hear it and then apply it. Help us to do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.